Say It Loud Network and Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being Black. Welcome to another episode of the history of being Black. I'm one of the most fortunate people in the world, Eunice Elliott, your host, because I get to talk to Black folks about Black folks being Black folks. And I mean, what else would I rather talk about? And today I am joined by, when I tell you, an absolute superstar, rock star, Nova star, (laughs) woman, uh, a force to be reckoned with, Dewana Thompson. Welcome to the history of being Black. So happy you could join us. I, first of all, I just love the name. I love, I love all that this represents. So I am so glad to be here. This is my kind of show. I'm, I'm excited about this. Thank you for the So, Dewana Thompson, you're one of those people that we might not know your name. Our listeners might not know who Dewana Thompson is. I know you in Birmingham, but the world and the nation knows your work. So tell me about Woke Vote what it is, how it came to be. Um, and then I have about a thousand questions after that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No so, um, well, again, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for what you're doing with this, um, this medium. And so Woke Vote is actually an organization that was birthed out of the 2017 special election um, for Senate in Alabama. I think um, a lot of people, you know, both locally and nationally were aware that for the first time in about 25 years, there was an opportunity to shift um, the political dynamic of that particular seat. And so you had, you know, this guy named Doug Jones who was running for Senate, and then you had this guy named Roy Moore who was running for Senate. Um, And ultimately, I had just, um, I was moving back, I was transitioning back from D.C. Prior to that, I had been in the Obama White House, and I had been working for the the DNC and and, and national capacities and all of that. I realized that a lot of the work that we needed to do to push um, sort of a social agenda around healthcare, equity, all these different things that particularly impact the black and brown communities, the proximity of myself, literally my, my body to the work needed to come back to the South. So I was already getting ready to re, you know, to transition back to Birmingham, which is where I'm from, born and raised, Ramsey High School, uh, all of that. Um, and when I heard about, I think it was like January of 2017, when I heard about the fact that Jeffrey Borgar Sessions was about to get nominated for something in the, in the Trump administration and everybody was talking about that and my brain was like well what are we about to do about you know about Alabama what are we going to do about this seat and I tried to tell anybody who would listen like yo there's an opportunity for us to do something significant to 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 do something progressive with this seat and nobody believed that it could be done nobody wanted to support nobody put no money on the ground nothing it was literally not until about September of 2017 that finally after kicking and screaming for almost a whole year people were like okay maybe that's a potential thing, right? And so I wrote um, a campaign plan that I thought could be implemented um, by a progressive group of people. And I was told, you know, all that sounds good, but we don't want to put money into, you know, you know, something as simple as engaging black students on HBCUs, stuff like that. And I was like, well, that's the work that we need to do to actually connect with the community, particularly around the fact that there's even an election going on. And they didn't want to do that. They wanted to stay in more traditional political, you know, space. And so I said, well, I'm going to do it on my own. And I started Woke Vote. And Woke Vote was literally um, at that time a campaign to get as many African-American voters and voters of color involved and engaged in the special election. And so in about six to eight weeks, we were able to turn out over 100,000 voters of color um, in that election cycle. And it wasn't about 
technically it wasn't about Doug Jones or Roy Moore. We never used either one of their names in our programming. What we talked about was what does it mean to significantly shift and show the strength of black voting, of black activism, of um, people of color making a, a determination about the way in which they want the next several years to go. And we were able to do that with that particular election. So what vote was born at that time? And it has grown since then. Honestly, we're now in about 16 different states uh, doing work um, that is um, necessary on the local level for the communities that we serve, teaching and training leaders, um, getting activated on social issues and justice issues. And that's just, you know, that it, it was a, a hard project for me. It was a it was something I felt like I had to do in 2017. Now I know it's something that I had to do um, and that I have to continue to do and provide leadership for moving forward. So that's the quick vote vote story in a nugget. <laughs> I mean, but it's just amazing to me that I'm curious, how, how did you go from going from D.C. to coming back to Alabama? I said Alabama as a <laughs> black woman and yeah. deciding that you had the power to shift the power. What gave you of all, like, what gave you the audacity to have that idea? Um, I mean, so many things. First of all, I'm from Birmingham. We had the audacity to believe that we could shift power in the 50s and 60s when literal young people walked out of high schools and middle schools and, you know, and did the Birmingham March, right? And I mean, so we have that really in our blood. We have that in um, our collective legacy. And so I think when we can pull on, you know, stories like that and to have incredible mentors, I had the Odessa Wolf folks and the John Lewis's and the Harry Belafonte's as a part of my mentorship. Um, but even, you know, the Houston Browns and the, the folk who are still the Angela Davises, um, you know, to, to, to know those stories, it, it didn't seem like it was something that couldn't be done. And quite frankly, the work that I've been able to do in my political career um, since 2005, when I got my start at the city of Birmingham and having worked and to get, you know, President Barack Obama elected as the first black president ever and, and having worked for Cory Booker and got him elected as one of the, you know, one of the first black senators ever um, nationally. So I think, you know, I wasn't concerned about what could be done, number one, because I stay close to the ground in the first place. I know the strength of our communities. I know that there's already this leadership that's happening all the time, whether it is lifted up, supported, um, engaged or not. And that really is the story that I wanted to tell with Woke Vote and that we are telling. It's illuminating all of these dynamic leaders and programs and processes that have really um, moved us from moment to moment and from time to time and from season to season for the entirety of our existence. But we've had to sometimes do that, you know, underground and to for survival. And so I knew that the networks exist. I was tacked in to them or tapped into them and I knew that if I gave them something to con to be concerned about that wasn't just about a candidate or like a political party, right? Like, yes, Doug Jones was running for Democrat and we felt um, at the time that his vision as a senator was more aligned to a progressive vision. So yeah, that's, that's the case. However, it was more important for us to be able to show that Black folk can organize stuff and, and we have the power to to do that without really permission, right? Permission or resources. Now, people should resource us, you know, and, and should put resources on the ground, but we've done what we had to do. We've seen it during COVID. We've taken care of ourselves during COVID with disparities are have loomed in terms of healthcare and all of those kinds of things. And so I just had the audacity to bet on black and I'm going to have that audacity every time, literally. 
the, the audacity to bet on black. So I'm, so you, you mentioned like the children's March in Birmingham and, and things that you got a chance in growing up in Birmingham to see as stories that a lot of people don't learn in history yes, books, sir. right? No, not in the curriculum. And so you mentioned mentors and Angela Davis and Harry Belafonte. So this, this is a two prong question. The importance of representation for you, this is what we talk about on the podcast. So mm. many of the stories that our guests share are things that people don't know. They're not mm. widely known stories, and we know why. Because if we know it can be done, we will do it. Right. So what what is the disconnect you feel from how how many of us don't know our stories, don't know what we can do? Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I was telling a friend of mine um, the other day, my mother <laughs> did a, a lot of stuff as a young woman that I am just now at 38 finding out. And I look at her every day like, who are you? Like, what? what? You know what I'm saying? Why didn't you tell me this? And I mean, she worked on as a college student, she worked on the first um, election for the first black mayor, Richard, Richard Arrington. And I just found that out like two days ago. And I'm yeah. like, sis, you didn't think the tech, you know, it's I you didn't start an organization called Vote. Did mention that to you? <laughs> and she has volunteered. She's done all kinds of stuff. And she was like, I told you that. I was like, no, you didn't. And so there's been other things that over the span of the last couple of years that she's like said, and I'm like, you know what? I need to, I need to get these stories out of you. And and I realize that that is commonplace as it relates to a lot of our communities. I mean, I have a lot of Native American friends and a lot of different background, you know, cultural friends, and it's the same thing. But in their cultures, there is this conversation that. You know, a lot of them live intergenerationally. So you have so many different levels of um, uh, of family members in the home who can who can bring those stories into the space. And so I think our generation is not as intergenerational, you know, as cultures or as generations before us. Right. So there's a little bit of a disconnect in that way. So I always see my role as bridging some of those gaps between the generation before me, my generation and the next generation. Um, Harry Belafonte, you know, I brought him up because in 2006, he, I think he was like a ripe 78 or something like that at that time. I'm not even sure, but he said he saw a nine-year-old get arrested and put in handcuffs in, in a, a school in Texas. And it infuriated him so that he decided that he needed to bring together young leaders and seasoned leaders and have something called a gathering. And in that, he said, my issue is that we got you your freedom, but we didn't teach you the strategies. And so he mm. felt that it was important to tell us the stories, to tell us the strategy, to invite us to think, you know, and to get our own agenda. And he would always say the agenda is to get an agenda. And I think that, you know, that's how, you know, when we talk about representation is, you know, in stories, it's so important to have those so that we can frame our agenda based off of some of the things that happened, you know, um, previously, what's happening currently, but what we imagine to happen in the, that we can do in the future. And to have representation, I think, my, even myself, yourself, and media, and in those spaces, it just illuminates what's possible. And so, um, you know, I'm taking on some new roles and that's a lot of that has to do with um, telling our, our stories and making sure that we have archives and all of that. And really, I think um, I have to I have to thank, you know, people in my life 
um, my college experience. I went to Berea College where they rooted us in conversation around black studies and, and, and you know, theology, black theology, all these things I never probably wouldn't have known. So um, I think we have a responsibility to have representation, to share stories at every place that we find ourselves, whether it's the kitchen table, whether it's at church, whether it's in the, the sorority meeting, whether it's at the hair, you know, hair salon, wherever it is, there's an opportunity to share stories and to and to see representation in those spaces. Sidebar, when you talk about Mr. Belafonte, weren't you just now involved with his celebration, his birthday I celebration? Was. I was. Tell me Oh, listen, he turned 94. And, you know, um, Carmen Perez, who is the president or executive uh, director of the Gathering for Justice, which is that that organization that I told you launched in 2006. I'm still a part of it and she's leading it and it's his organization. She said, you know, we really need to do something to celebrate Mr. B now. You know, we've seen in 2020 and, and, and really before 2020, we really start to lose a lot of our elders and we just wanted to we try to celebrate Mr. B all the time but we wanted to have, you know, when he's still able to really um, hear and uh, internalize all that he, he has meant um, to the culture, to the community, to, um, to justice. And so I, I was just floored when they asked me to, to, to say my little couple of words, you know, to him um, as one of his mentees, you know, for, for a long time now. And but to see everybody, I mean, anybody and everybody you can think of this man's life, activism, his work is somewhat embedded in, you know, in what they do, um, you know, to be on something that had everybody from Jay-Z to Susan Sarandon to Bette Midler to, you know, just folk that I'm like, OK, wow, you know. No, I, I wouldn't have even known, you know, the Tamika Mallory's of the world, um, you know, so many different people and all to say that this gentleman who who basically took what he had, you know, he was um, privileged at that time to be able to be on a national platform as a man of color. A lot of people don't know, you know, he basically funded the civil rights um, movement. Um, you know, he was present for so many of the important moments Um that we can think of. He was a confidant to Dr. King and to others, and he's still playing that role. And so to, to be able to, to be involved in his, in the celebration of his life, you know, it's just, it, it, it grounds me in a way and recommits me to the work in a way that I, I really can't explain. And I'm, I'm super honored to have been a part of that. Well, let me tell you, watching parts of it and seeing you share it on your social, whatever, uh, you know how you say, I'm, I'm the man standing next to the man standing next to the man standing next to It was beautiful and, and it's exciting to watch you shine in this space and grow in this space. And I know it's not about, for you, it's not about people knowing Dewana Thompson's name, right? It's about people mm -hmm. being active and galvanized in our communities. Right. Talk to me about when you have a program like Woke Vote that, I mean, if you say 2017, it hasn't been alive that long. It has already been so effective. And like you said, it's already grown to 16 states. But talk mm -hmm. to me about the fine, I think it's a fine line between voter suppression, yeah. which we talk about a lot, and voter apathy in our community. Yeah. Where is that line and where where that's the issue of why we're not turning out? It's hard for us to turn out. We're being discouraged from turning out. And then some of us just don't turn out because we don't think it matters. Right. I, you know, I sort of push back, you know, it's because I think that 
voter suppression is actually a part um, or voter apathy is actually a, a form of voter suppression. And the reason why we have apathy is because systems that we tend to have to rely on that we're supposed to be able to trust that are sometimes um, influenced and or, you know, the leadership is of those systems are, you know, based on voting, um, those those institutions have failed us. And so the apathy is a result, if you will, of failed leadership, of failed investment, of missed opportunities and that kind of thing. So the line a lot of times is, is a little blurry, right, when it comes to that. What I always tell people is that um, we have under-engaged voters um, and under-engaged potential voters, right? Because... Um, Voter suppression is a tactic. It is, it is, it is a tactic that is used to, um, retain power from individuals such as ourselves. Um, what people would consider marginalized communities or communities that have, um, disparities, um, in certain areas, right? Because everybody knows, I think it's pretty clear at this point that, you know, it, all of this is a power play. <laughs> and that's why I always tell people, don't give up your power. You know, even if you don't fully, uh, uh, have a, a analysis on exactly how your power can be leveraged, you don't just give it up. You know what I'm saying? That's like me saying, I got a hundred dollars. I don't know necessarily how to invest it, but I ain't going to just give it away. Right. I'm going to hold on to, I'm at least hold on to it um, and figure out the best way for me to use it. And um, our voting is our spending capital when it comes to, to power in this country. It's one of the only spending capitals that, you know, we're equal in. Everybody gets one vote. So I think that, um, it, it, it really is about teaching people about the system, right, and how it works. Because I think the more you teach people about how the system works, they see the vote as, as a tool versus just something that somebody is telling them to do, uh, which right. is why we don't always, you know, you'll never hear us be like, vote because somebody died. Like, I, as much as important as that is and how and, and as accurate as that is, it just don't land for people who, who are disconnected sometimes from history. If you ain't thought about, you know, your history and, and and no one's taught you to your point earlier about, you know, how all of this came to be in terms of voting rights and all of that. Somebody telling you vote because some people that you ain't never heard of, you know, died before. That's not going to move you. But me telling you, listen, if you don't vote, this STEMI check you talking about, you know, <laughs> how you get that. If Big Mama going to be able to go to a, to get the services that she needs, um, you know, you have to you got to make it makes sense and connect the dots for people so that then they're like, oh, okay, the voting is about ensuring certain things for my community, ensuring certain things for my family. And with that vote, if people don't do what, what we said or what they said they were going to do, my power is that I can shift my vote a different way. Right. My power is that I can show up, you know, to your doorstep and say, you said that you were going to do this and now you're not. So it's really explaining it, um, connecting it to real issues, to real concerns and giving people, you know, a, a pathway that, of how to use those things to impact the things that they care about. Make it matter to them is yes. is what make it most important. You've seen government from local to city to national. Um, what is it that you think that we miss the most of? I know a lot of times people kind of just blow by local elections. Can you yeah. speak to the importance of 
of those local elections and how important it is for us to vote. Those, those always have the lowest turnout, right? Ooh, I know. And, and I always tell people all politics is local. Every last piece of politics is local. And I got my start in municipal um, politics. And I tell anybody, it's still my, it's still the most immediate form of politics and government that that I love to be a part of because it has the most immediate impact. And when you th- and I think when people think local, they only think about like city council and mayor, but it's like no, local actually has everything to do with your with your board of education. It has everything oh. to do with your housing authority. It has everything to do um with, you know, uh cash bail. It has your shares. Like there's so many positions that govern us locally that get their um their power, if you will, from state law. And so when you talk about um, changing the state constitution, I mean, we just, I don't know how many people were paying attention, but just in this last two years, it's significant to note that we just got out of our uh, 19, I think our constitution was written in 1913. I could be off on that, but um there was still a clause in that that said that we should be separ- um, going to separate schools, right? Like right. it was still in there. Right. And they brought it up for vote two times in the last 15 years and it was still upheld. It's just, that language is just now changing in the last two years because of voters, right? Who were like, oh wait, when did this happen? And they had to do a whole campaign around that just to make sure people understood that that language was still there. So I think, um, and that's local, right? That is that is something that impacts us here, you know, every single day. And so I always encourage people to get involved in local, you know, elections, your mayor, your city council, you know, um, your school board, um, any of the, the the transit, you know, authority, any anything that impacts your every single day experience, you should be aware of uh, and getting involved in whether it's through voting or just being knowledgeable of, of how those systems work. I think that's one thing that's definitely lost on people, as you mentioned, you know, Board of Education. People think city council, but there's so many other appointed and elected officials that really, you know, determine what's happening on your street. And people, that's just lost on them. So when you started Woke in 2017, you saw an immediate need here in Alabama. You felt galvanized. You had the audacity to help shift that change. So when we saw in the general election last year in 2020, how much was shifted? We talked about Georgia turning blue with uh, Stacey Abrams' uh, efforts, and you mentioned Tamika Mallory. What is that for you, kind of being somewhat of of the most audacious person in Alabama in 2017 to see this groundswell of this is becoming the norm is that we are starting to understand that shift in that power we have. Ooh, um, the South is a whole nother <laughs> beast, um, honestly. And, you know, Georgia didn't just happen in 2020. I tell people all the time, I met Stacey Abrams almost five years ago, and she had already had a lifetime of experience leading and, and pushing things and, and, and shifting, trying to shift policy, um, when she was in the state house. And so, and I met a lot of organizers who had been working with her since that time. And then there's the names that you won't hear, the insane of the world who registered almost a million people in the five years leading up to 2020, right? So there's so, um, it's layered what has to happen in order for us to have these moments and to have these victories. And so I look at Woke Vote as being very young in the game in terms of, um, particularly for the work that we need to do in Alabama. And, you know, I'll share this with you. I haven't even really shared this publicly because I, I, it, it, you know, when we, 2020 was a hard year. It required us to be on the ground in so many different states. We did work in Alabama because there was still work that we needed to do here. But it was clear to me that the biggest gain that we could make 
to impact the most people was going to be shifting what happened in the presidential election and then subsequently in the Senate races um, in the Senate race in Georgia. So that meant that we couldn't do everything that we wanted to do in Alabama. And I and I was pretty aware that we were going to lose that seat again. And I, I was trying to figure out like, OK, <laughs> how can we, you know, what, what's the disconnect on that? Because we, we did it in 2017. And I just have to be honest, you know, people are in 2020 and even now, we are at the most conscious state that we've been politically. And I'm talking about all the way down to the babies, right? Um, and so things that you might have been able to get away with or slide, you know, slide across with, somebody's watching, the streets is watching, as, they, as, as the young folks say. And I truly feel that, you know, it's a different thing for me to say, let's get out here and vote for the opportunity to, for change. It's another thing for people to look and see a person in a role and not be confident with what they did or did not do in that role and say, you don't deserve my vote. And I'm not even, I'm not motivated to vote. And I really believe that that's what happened in 2020. And I would have I would have still said, y'all, let's <laughs> let's think about the way, you know, let's be strategic about this. But, you know, the reality is, is that the the we have a lot more work to do to build a, a system and a, a larger network so that we can continue our progress. We still have quite a bit of progress across um, in other areas in the state. I mean, we're still picking up new judges that look like, you know, black folk and care about black folk issues. We, you know, we got a new um in 2018, we got a new sheriff. We got a new a district attorney. Like, so we're seeing, you know, those kinds of things happen. So we, we're not losing momentum. We just lost that seat. And I hate that we lost that seat, but it's just, um, it really is a, t it's a, it's a story. It's a lesson to be learned that you can't just engage for the sake of engaging. You've got to engage. And when you get an opportunity, you got to lead. And there was a lack of leadership in that space. And so my goal right now is to, is to really try to help and, and connect with folks so that we can have a continuum of activity that's happening so that we can see some of this same sort of iconic shift that we're, that we're starting to see in Georgia and Florida and North Carolina and places like that. Now, I want to make sure our listeners understand if they're not in Alabama, when Dewan is talking about we lost that seat, is that question of how could Tommy Tuberville win? <laughs> and so it's almost amazing because it's not that you think that someone couldn't win or shouldn't win. And so for the folks that are listening that aren't in Alabama, that is Tommy Tuberville. You saw him nationally with being confused about the branches of government and how things work and insurrection the whole thing yeah no. yeah that's 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 who that's who the elected <laughs> it's a it's a lot it's a lot so i want you to tell me and, I, and again i don't know if you've ever thought about this before you okay. talk about the mentors and the people that came before you and yeah. you are a very young woman doing very big things and you already have cemented yourself in history national history local history state history have you ever thought about what is the story you want our grandkids to tell about Dewana Thompson? Ooh, um, not not exactly. You know, and I think, um, and I'm not sure that anybody before me thought about that either. You know, um, and I think it might also be indicative of the work. It's so in consuming sometimes you don't get to think about that because I do think that there's a difference between legacy planning and Succession planning, right? Um, okay. Succession planning is more about what do we need to put in place so that the systems continue to have the impact that we want them to have impact. 
legacy is more is more personal, right? It's like, you know, what what do I want people to say about, you know, the work or how do I want my particular, you know, work to, to live in? So I'm more so right now on the succession planning, both helping elders that I that I love who are who are, you know, much more seasoned than I figure out how to have their work continue, right? Um, and to because I think the legacy will be tied to the succession planning, right? And also just like the quality of life for them, you know, as they are, you know, seeing, you know, some of their last years. For me, you know, as a person of faith, I just want to hear well done. Like I just want to get in the gates, right? Um, and so I know that might say, oh, buddy, that's listen, the way these folks are out here, I'm like, look, I'm just trying to get in the gates. <laughs> but I, <laughs> but um, you know, what I am blessed is that I get to see you know, because we have fellowships and interns, I get to see the work live on in the folks that I'm training and in the work that we're doing. You know, every time someone calls me and says, Miss D, we were able to push this to get this done. You know, thank you for teaching me how to do this. That's the best legacy, you know, I can have. That's the that's the best testimony I can have. And so, you know, my goal is to try to continue to plant the seeds. My 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 personal sort of mantra is seeds today, fruit tomorrow. So I, you know, I'm just trying to plant the seeds and then the fruit will tell its its story, you know. Um and it'll have new seeds, you know, to be planted. And so that's just where I am right now. I haven't really thought about much, much longer term um than that. Um but you know I am but I, I, t- <laughs> I tell people I lived a lot of life in 38 years that I was never even expecting. You know, I I really... People ask me all the time, well, did you go to school for this? I was like, no, I, honey, I was going to go be a corporate attorney because I always been about my coins. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was going to get my money. And, and, but I always was community based because my church upbringing and my family upbringing, we, that was just, it went hand in hand. It didn't matter what your profession was going to be. You still were supposed to come back or, you know, stay rooted and be black and do the work of the Lord and do, do all, you know, whatever it is you're supposed to do. So I never saw it at odds, you know, or even, um, a conflict. I always figured that they would be in tandem of each other or in complement to each other. But learning more and more about how power um, is leveraged in this community, in this country, and what is necessary um, and what has been, you know, necessary for us to move our community forward, you know, that just lended itself more to sort of the, my path. And I'm just open as the opportunities come and I believe that they're ordained. I, I take them and I take them, you know, to some extent, you know, one of my things that I tell my mentor is that I'm just not afraid to fail either. If it, if I do do it and it doesn't work out, listen, I did it and, and y'all can, I will be the first to say it didn't work. But that's living. Like what I'm not afraid to do is live. And I think a lot of us are afraid to to live our full lives. And with full life, sometimes that's failing and sometimes it's disappointment. Sometimes it's, man, I thought that was going to be something else and it's not and people going to see it and it's just going to be what it is. I told somebody, look, I done had a car repossessed. I now own, I now I'm drive a jack. It's whatever place I find myself in, I'm gonna live that full, full life. And I think, you know, we all deserve that. And we need to be, you know, we need to think in that way and not be so afraid to to just take the chances and and to do your best and and, and do the work that you believe that you're called to do. The rest of it will, will work out. 
I love that. I so believe in that. I tell people all the time, anytime I do something that doesn't work out and someone says, well, you thought that was going to work? I'm like, that's the only reason I did it. It was the best idea I had. (laughs) That's why I did it. And then sometimes you look and you say some of, I always say all of my worst ideas actually started out as my best one. That's the only reason I did it. I can acknowledge it as don't do that no more or do it differently. And you keep it moving. I got a story to tell. So my last question for you. Yeah. Understanding power, the power you all already have been able to leverage in in community and in numbers would you ever run for off oh i thought i was gonna get through it without having to answer that <laughs> um <laughs> um so ooh, i'll never say never it's not in my immediate thought process nor is it something that i feel like i i would have to do i uh, unlike some of my other you know um colleagues in the political space that might be their goal or the optimum thing for them i i like the behind the scenes i like to know how it all works i like to because back there if you know how it works you can make it work how you need it to work right but i also believe this when people truly um run for office and they have the right reasons for running for office um it's a calling and i think that there when you are doing it for the right reasons there are sacrifices that you already know that you have to make that you're willing to make there is a selflessness that comes along with true service uh public service and i tell people right now i'm still a little i'm still a little selfish i'm trying to jump on a plane when i get ready to you know (laughs) so and i don't want to hear nobody asking me you know you know because when you when you a public servant People got a right to ask you questions about what you do with your time and, you know, all of that. And I'm like, listen, I'm not ready for that. You listen, <laughs> I, y'all know I jump on the plane in the second trying to go get some peace. So I am... Um... I think if it was ever called of me at the time that it would be called of me, I would be ready to accept it. But I don't I don't believe that's being asked of me right now. And I'm and I'm grateful. Well, (laughs) I'm grateful that you have answered all of the callings that have been laid Mm -hmm. on your life so far. And I am sending love, light and energy for all your future callings. I do always like to ask our guests to offer our audience an action item because it takes each one of us to teach one to be the change. And that's our hashtag be the change. So what is an action item you will offer our audience of something that we can all do to make this world a better place? My thing, oh God, there's so many things we can do. My my action item would be to get an action item, right? I think that part of it is not all of us are moved by the same thing. So I could say, listen, go find a homeless person today and give them a meal. I could say, hey, go donate some books to uh, a community center. There's so many things that you could do, um, you know, get involved in prison ministry or whatever it may be. Um, but that might not be the thing that moves you. But the goal is really to find the thing. And when you find the thing, make a move, get involved, stay, you know, stay active, make a commitment to something. Um, and that's how you, how you be the change, but also how you see the change continually impact um, your community. You know, find a thing like Harry Belafonte told me, the agenda is to find an agenda, get something that, that, that fit infuriates you or makes you super happy. Cause um, both of those things will motivate you to stay involved. So for me, those things are mentorship, 
you know, I think if you, you know, if you have the time mentoring um, someone in a in, in, in generation, you know, coming up under you, it would be great. Um, so mentorship is really cool. Um, I'm all about this in social justice. And so if you if there are organizations that are doing good work in the name of civil rights and civil liberties, you know, donate, you know, get online, you know, support, sometimes show up to a march, whatever that may be. Um, as a person of faith, I, I really I think that we're supposed to take care of folk in our community. So if there's senior citizens that you can, you know, check on them and just make sure they're okay, go play some Uno. You know, do that. And so those are ways that you, you know, simple things that you can do to be to be the change. And so um I just encourage you to actually do it, to find the path and um to get involved. I love it. I, I love the, the agenda is to get an agenda. I like to say hydrate and get you some business. Right. I think it's kind of the same thing. Same concept. Thompson, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for gracing us with your your time, your knowledge, you your energy. And as an Alabamian, uh, thank you for the work that you have, have done to help shift the conversation here. And for all the people that didn't know your name, thank you for all the work you've done nationally and that you will continue to do. And we are definitely, uh, we will be watching. Uh, uh, hopefully you'll come back and visit us again soon here Absolutely. on the History of Being Black. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening to another episode. And we will talk to you guys next time. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Lauren Turner. Edited by Ken Johnson. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion and say it loud network production.